The following message was given by Tim Abbott on Sunday, December 9th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good morning again. My name is Tim. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, I think it'll take a while. I've never quite seen so many people go out. Uh, Once we said the word donuts, it just opened up the floodgates out there. So hopefully you got one. I don't know how long they stuck around, Uh, but we are glad to be together here this morning. Thank you for braving the the winter weather. Uh, We are excited to be together. It is the second week of Advent. As as Christians look forward with excitement to, to remember and celebrate Christ coming into the world, for us as, as Christians, Advent means coming or arrival. For us as Christians, it's, it's so much more than just a celebration of, of something that happened 2,000 years ago. A- Advent um, is, is, means new life to us, means uh, that, that we have been given, given life in the fact that Christ came and was born. Now we can be born again. We can, we can know who he is. Um, Advent is a celebration that Christ has come and that his power is at work in the present day and that he will come again. So uh, Isaiah chapter 9 says it, says it this way, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then there's this wonderful, wonderful statement, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end ever-increasing peace. That is what, that is what Christ brings, a, a peace that never stops growing. It's, a, it's such an amazing statement. We are winding up our time today in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we are going to consider today how the power and grace of God brings about that peace in our life, in our hearts, and in our relationships. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to start out in Philippians uh, chapter 4. We'll read together from Philippians 4, 1 through 3 says this, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Father, uh, thank you that... Uh, apart from you, uh, we could not know peace, we could not know unity, we could not know forgiveness or reconciliation, uh, but in you there is ever-increasing peace. Um, your kingdom is full of a peace that is growing more and more forever, and so uh, we want to see that come alive in, in our life. We want to see that transform our relationships. We want to see that transform the way we are with, with those around us. Uh, we want to see it transform the way we are uh, with fellow Christians and, and with those who don't know you yet. Father, I pray that we would uh, seek after this, we would pursue this peace uh, so that we can know it and, and, and know you in a greater way. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so uh, raise your hands. Uh, as you can actually raise your hands if you have ever had a disagreement with someone before. Okay, good, good. Most of us have been honest. There's a few hands that didn't go up. Raise your hands if you had a conflict today with someone because of the snow and trying to figure out uh, if you're going to come. Okay, no, no hands. Nobody honest. That's all right. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we, uh, everyone has, has, has done this at some point. We had... Uh, my wife and I did 
pre-marriage coaching with a couple a few years ago. They they aren't here, so uh, they won't be offended by me telling this story. we, we ask them, we often get asked, so, so for whatever reason, I don't know how this happened, we have a number of couples who have come up to us and said, hey, we've heard you're the conflict couple. Uh, can we meet with you about some conflict? And I never really know what to, to do with that. What, what does it mean to be the conflict couple? Uh, but we take it as a compliment. We've tried to work out things well, and we talk to a lot of people about conflict. Uh, so we talked to this young couple about, about conflict, and we said, Give us an example of, 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 of some conflict that you've experienced. And they said, you know, we really haven't experienced any. And I was like, great, that's awesome. Uh, and so I said, give me an example of, of conflict that you've experienced with anyone ever in your life. And they said, I don't think we've ever really had any. And I said, all right, we're done. Let's eat dinner. There's, there's no reason for us to keep going on. Uh, for the most part, everybody has experienced conflict. Everybody will experience disagree, disagreement. Uh, so you don't have to be shocked uh, with, with when that happens. But imagine the last disagreement that you had with someone, the last argument you had with a family member, a friend, someone that you cared about, the last time you disagreed with someone enough that it put some distance between you and that person. Maybe it lasted an hour, maybe it lasted a year, maybe it's still going on. Uh, Jake Ballou is one of our pastors here. Is he here today? Jake, are you here? No, you're not here. Okay, so there are two things you can give Jake a hard time about the next time you see him. Uh, one, that he's not here this morning. The other uh, is that even though he is, he is a pastor, he is an amazing man, he has a passion for world missions, he is a great husband, he is a great father, he's easy to get along with. Jake and I have a disagreement, uh, a pretty major disagreement. If you were to ask Jake what his favorite movie of all time is, and I have, he would say that his favorite movie is the first Rocky. Now, on that, nobody disagrees, and uh, no one should ever disagree that Rocky is, is truly one of the great all-time movies. Every human being, male or female, should love Rocky, and we can all agree on that. Um, most of the Rocky movies are amazing. Uh, the new Creed movie is fantastic. When, when Rocky goes up against Drago, it's fantastic. I haven't seen Creed two, but I am so excited to watch Apollo Creed's son take down Ivan Drago and his son. I hope both of them get in the ring and he just knocks them both out. Uh, that's what I anticipate the end is going to be. Uh, now, here's, here's where we disagree. If you ask Jake what his second, second favorite movie of all time is, he is going to say the movie Rocky V. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the, the unfortunate experience of having to watch Rocky V, but Rocky V is literally probably the worst movie ever made. Hands down, it is not an opinion, it is a fact. It is the worst movie ever made. Uh, it, is, it is universally agreed upon. Uh, when it came out, the, it got nominated for seven Golden Raspberry Awards, which I don't know what that is, but apparently it means, it means your movie is really bad. Nine years after the movie came out, nine years after Rocky V came out, Time Magazine, Time Magazine put it on the list of the 100 worst ideas of the 20th century. <laughs> Not the 100 worst movies of the 20th century, the 100 worst ideas of the 20th century. It's a really bad movie. Uh, Now, Jake and I have worked together in the church as elders for the sake of, of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. So what if, because of that argument, Jake and I stopped talking to each other. We just decided the friendship is done. He just cares so much about Rocky V that this is over. And we broke the unity and fellowship. And then Robert next week came up here 
and, and to everyone said, I want to remind Jake and Tim to stop arguing and agree in Jesus. Imagine if a pastor in a sermon called out that disagreement that you have in your mind with someone else in front of the whole church. How, how would you feel about that? You'd probably be horrified, right? Rightfully. You'd probably think, I can't believe Robert just did that. Uh, you'd be sitting and hoping that no one was looking around to see you, but knowing that everyone is in fact staring at you. Um, I, I think to myself, I guess Jake and I have to sit down and watch that awful movie together, and I'm going to have to pretend like I like it. Um, Jake and I need to get our stuff worked out, or I need to stop going to this church. So that would be bad. Now just imagine for, for, for a minute that you take that argument and you get it, it gets put into the Bible. All of a sudden, every Christian for the rest of time will read the words, Jake and Tim really need to stop disagreeing and start to get along. Now we're way past embarrassed, way past horrified. I can make this the shortest sermon you've ever heard, and maybe we need to make that happen. Uh, and we can all agree we don't want an argument that we had with someone to be recorded in God's holy word for all of time. So go resolve your conflict as soon as possible. As much as that would make, hopefully, some of us run out and try to resolve some things, it, it wouldn't actually produce the kind of lasting transformation that a right understanding of what God has done for us in Christ can. It is that lasting transformation that we are really hoping for, and it is that lasting change that only God can really produce in us. Philippians chapter 4 presents a really, really unique situation. It is not a common practice of Paul's to call out church members sin by name in his letters, but he does it here. So, so who are these women? Yodia and Syntyche. Everything that is known about these women is found here in these two verses. What is said in these two verses speaks volumes about who they were. Paul says, these women have fought together with me. This is verse 3. Paul says, these women have fought together with me. They have labored with me for the sake of the gospel. He says that their names are written in the book of life. Paul has a love and respect for these women, and it is because Paul knows the value and importance that these women specifically have for the church and how valuable their work has been for the sake of the gospel. They have labored, they have worked with me side by side. I love that phrase, side by side. He doesn't say these women have been really good backup to the men of the church. He doesn't say these women have been a really good support system to the work that I and the other men have been able to do. He doesn't say we couldn't have done it with, we couldn't have done everything that we, that we did if these women weren't behind the scenes helping out. These women have labored side by side with me, Paul, an apostle. They have labored together with me in the gospel. So then we need to understand Paul is not pointing out these women because this is something that women do and men don't. He is pointing this out because these women are undoubtedly to Paul believing, faithful women that have been so meaningful to the church and been so faithful to the work for the, for the, for the gospel that this conflict has become a living example of, of how just two people not having the same mind in Christ can start to divide the church. They have a disagreement that has separated them and is known to the church and is causing harm to the gospel and the church at Philippi. And Paul calls on them to agree. 
to, to have the same mind, and he calls on others to get involved in bringing them together to ensure that this gets worked out. There is a lot at stake in these two women coming together, resolving their conflict and coming together in unity. That is why Paul pleads with them to agree in the Lord. Uh, verse 2, he says, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche. He is not trying to shame them in front of the church. He cares deeply for them, and he knows how important it is that they work this out. We aren't actually told what their, their disagreement was. It was probably something more substantial than how good Rocky Five is, but we are not told what it was. So then why is this so important? How could this situation that we are not given great detail about, how could a disagreement between two people be so important that Paul, being led by the Spirit of God, had to address this to the entire church? And God in his infinite wisdom recorded this for everyone in his church to read about. It's so important because Paul has been emphasizing this same thing throughout this entire letter, the unity of the church. He's been focusing on it again and again. And the unity of the church is, is truly a beacon of light to the rest of the world. The love the church has for one another, one another is something that Christ prayed for and gave his life for and shows the world what it means to truly be found in Christ. So Paul reminds them to agree in the Lord or to have the same mind. This is the same word that he uses in chapter 2, verse 2 uh, of Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being like-minded or having the same mind. And then he completes that, that, that thought in, in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. So he has been already emphasizing this to the church. Have this mind together. Have the same mind together. The mind that, that is in Christ Jesus, have this same mind. Philippians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, let those who are mature think this way. Again, he uses the same word, to think alike, to agree. Those who are, those who are mature need to think alike. They need to agree. Now understand that Paul wrote this as a letter to a group of people, and so it would have been read as a letter to the entire church at one time. So they would have heard Paul using the same word again and again, have the same mind, have the mind of Christ, be like-minded. And now to really show what he means, he uses a specific example to, to really drive the point home. This was not just a problem with these two women. This was an issue in that church. He is, he is emphasizing it again and again because this is something that has taken hold of this church. And if you had been sitting there, and you had heard it twice already, and now Paul says it a third time, this time specifically about two important people in your church, I can assure you the people who were, who, who were there went home and remembered that God wants his people to be like-minded, that God wants his people to work out their disagreements, to resolve their conflict, and come together in unity. John chapter 13, uh, this, is Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He, he, he tells his disciples, they will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. They will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. That means how we are with one another reflects brightly to the rest of the world. The way we respond to one another, the way we love one another, the way we deal with conflict, the way we forgive one another speaks loudly to those who are not Christians. We often think that, that our disagreements, our, our, our disputes that happen be between us and somebody else, they don't they don't mean anything to, to anyone else. No one will ever hear about it. It won't impact anybody else. But the way we do these things speaks loudly to those who are not Christians. Our ability to pursue peace and seek unity in the church shows the rest of the world that we belong to Christ. 
that that our ability to pursue peace and seek unity in the church shows the rest of the world that we belong to Christ. We are, in fact, His. So those relationships that we have within the church are essential for your growth and maturity. They are essential as we partner together in the work of the gospel, and they are essential to show the rest of the world that we are disciples of Christ. When there is a need for reconciliation, it means that we have broken that relationship. We have created space between us and that other person. We have created disunity, and to be honest, we are too often okay with that happening. We are okay if, if a few of our relationships seem to get off a little bit. These people that we come together with on Sunday morning and gather together, these people that you have deep, meaningful relationships with that, that are fellow Christians, that you are in community with, people that you are making disciples of, people that you are praying for and pray, praying, praying with, uh, these are not disposable relationships. For some of you, you feel like you have enough friendships, enough relationships, that if one gets slightly off, that you'll be fine if that relationship relationship just stops. It is easy to look at your church. It is easy to look at your relationships and say, I'm okay if I lose a friend or two. These people are fellow workers in the gospel. Their names are written in the book of life. They are fellow saints. They are brothers and sisters. They are fellow recipients of the grace of God. These are not expendable relationships. When disagreements arise, when conflict arises, we are called to unity. We are not called to passively just, 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 don't even think about it and, and just let the relationship go away. We are called to unity. We are called to remember what Christ has done for us and then work out those disagreements and agree in the Lord. Paul is not simply writing them because they were, they were old friends and he hates to see old friends not be friends anymore. He, 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 just, he just hates to see friendships fade away. He's not just being sentimental here. It's not just for the sake of the relationship, but it is to show how the power of God can heal broken relationships and because the church is made stronger by people coming together seeking peace and unity in Christ. That is why it is so important. So, so what is this unity that he is calling them to? It is not perfect agreement on everything in life. You don't have to agree on everything. Jake and I are freed to think differently about Rocky. Uh, Heather and Ray are, are freed up to, to think differently about the Eagles and Cowboys. Um, that is going to go on forever, and we understand that. But what Paul is calling them to when he says agree in the Lord is that he wants to make sure that you agree over the gospel. They had labored together in the gospel, and that work was at stake. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Make sure that issues of greatest importance, the gospel, the word of God, the glory of Christ, the good of God's people, the beauty of holiness, the ugliness of sin, especially your own, focus on what unites you, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That's, that's what we come together and agree upon. That's what we come together and find that common ground upon. So then why is it so difficult? Why is resolving conflict with, with others such a difficult thing? These were Christian women who had sacrificed and labored for the sake of the gospel. Surely this isn't that hard. Surely, if you are that committed to the gospel, if you are confident in who Christ is, then once you see conflict come up, once you see a disagreement happen, if you're a Christian, then you will immediately work to resolve that and return to the unity that God has, has, has called you to, right? No, apparently not. If these women who labored side by side with the apostle needed help, with their disagreements, needed help in resolving their conflict, then just know you are going to have some conflict and know that you are probably not always going to handle it well. 
And so you are going to need help from others in that situation. You don't need to be shocked when you have conflict. What causes conflict? James chapter 4 asks that very question. James chapter 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that you have sinful desires at war within you? As in people sin against each other because they have sin inside them. Or they feel like they have been sinned against and conflict is born. There are so many reasons we can talk about that, that cause conflict and make resolution difficult. Pride, sense of entitlement, selfishness, desire to be right about things. It's a really long list. But for today, I would just say, honestly, forgiveness is hard. Working out those disagreements means a humbling of yourself, confessing where you were wrong, and then forgiving one another. Working out those disagreements means a humbling of yourself, confessing where you're wrong, and then forgiving one, one another. Most of the time, honestly, we are not good at forgiveness. We, we, are, we are bad at seeking forgiveness, and we are bad at giving forgiveness. And that is not a recipe for unity. That is not a recipe for people coming together. We are bad at truly confessing our sins and, and asking for forgiveness. We are bad at naming our sins and seeking forgiveness. Celebrities and politicians have become notorious for bad apologies. I'm sorry if anyone was offended by what I said. If I punch you in the face and I say, I'm sorry if anyone was hurt by what I just said, that's not a real apology. That doesn't help the situation. That's not naming your sin, confessing your sin, and seeking forgiveness. Someone was hurt, and it's because of a direct action that I did. James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins to one another that you may be healed. We need to get that right. We need to be willing to do that. But it is also very difficult to forgive someone, truly forgive someone. We tend to hold on tight to pain and hurt. There's a popular phrase in our culture, I forgive you, but I can't forget. Now, now I know there's a reality to our inability to forget things that have hurt us. We are not God in that way. We cannot take these things away in the same way he can. Um, but we should all be thankful that, that God doesn't say this to us. We should all be grateful that, that, that when we confess our sins and cry out to tr for true forgiveness, that God doesn't shoot back begrudgingly, I forgive you, but I'll never forget it. The problem is that many times when someone says that, what they mean is, I I'm going to say I'll forgive you, but I'm keeping this in my back pocket if you ever do that again. If you ever mess up again, I'm keeping this in my back pocket to just add to the long list of things that you've done wrong against me. We are told to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. We, we were forgiven while we were still sinners. The apostle Peter came to Jesus in, in, in this, this wonderful way that only Peter can. The apostle Peter came to Jesus and said, how often do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? And then Peter gives what he thinks is the right answer. And, Peter, in, in some ways, I don't, mean this, I don't mean this demeaningly, but Peter in some ways is like, is like my six-year-old Abraham. Like the answers he comes up with are just, they obviously fall short. So he comes and says, Peter, you know, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? And he comes out with seven times? Like that's a pretty low number. Like I even, I even get that. Um, this is Matthew chapter 18. But more than likely, this question didn't come out of, of nowhere. Someone, one of the other apostles, his wife, probably had just sinned against him. Um, someone had repeatedly sinned against him, and, and I'm just guessing here, but he had probably just forgiven them the seventh time. Like, he had probably just done the seventh time, and he was just about done. So he comes to Jesus and says, how many times do you have to forgive someone? I don't know, seven times? Uh, 
And Jesus comes back with what? Does anybody know? 70 times 7. So if you think that the right answer is set, like, how many times do I have to do a good act? Seven times? And they come back with 490 times. You're probably realizing at that point, you've got your limits. Um, he, when, when Christ says that, it is a beautiful moment. And he's not giving. You know, it's not actually 490 times. So if you think, okay, good. Now I know, 490 times. No. He's just wiping away Peter's answer there. He's just saying, you're not anywhere close. Um, Honestly, though, can you imagine just, just literally forgiving someone 490 times? Like someone in coming, coming and asking for forgiveness 490 times. If I'm honest, I, I, if someone has sinned against me seven times, we're probably at the point where our relationship is going to take a break. Like we're probably done for a little while because, because that feels like a lot. Outside of family, outside of like super close relationships, more than seven does actually feel like a, like a lot. Uh, so, so then, but then Christ goes on to say that because God has forgiven us so much, then you cannot refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters. And at the end of it, he says these wonderful words. He, he, he tells this story and he says this, these wonderful words. You cannot refuse to forgive them from your heart. We much more easily say the words, I forgive you, than we actually forgive someone. We go through that process because we know we have to say it, but we don't actually feel it or believe it in, in our heart. But Christ calls us to actually do it from our heart. You can't just say that you forgive someone and then hold on to it and hold it against them. In your heart, you have to forgive them. But we are so bad at this that in place of forgiving someone, we not only hold on to it, but we believe often, we like get this really wrong, we now believe that we are really freed to sin as long as someone, else's, someone else sins first. Our natural tendency is to act like we're six when someone hurts us. When someone hurts us, we then feel completely free to respond however we want to to that person. Instead of forgiving them, we feel freed up to start sinning against them. I can respond in anger, I can withhold forgiveness, I can talk about you behind your back and call it venting. Why? Because they did it first. They, they were the first ones to sin and now I can go and just do whatever I want to to them. A few weeks ago, my daughter Clementine, who's two, often wants to play with whatever Abraham, our six-year-old, has uh, because he's, he's kind of out of control and goofy, and so he makes everything look really fun to a two-year-old. And so he was playing with a toy and turned it into a rocket, and he set it down for a second, and Clementine went over and grabbed it, had no idea what to do with it, and just ran away laughing. Um, and, and Abraham went and grabbed the toy from her and kind of shoved her to the ground. So we explained as calmly as we can to a six-year-old boy who just pushed a two-year-old girl to the ground, what on earth are you doing to your sister? His answer, she did it first. I don't know how, how, how kids naturally think this is a reasonable answer. I didn't actually teach him to that. I don't, I don't know anybody that taught him that that was the answer. Hey, if your sister does something to you, you're freed up to just trip her and sit on her for a while while you take your toy back. That's nothing that we've ever sat down and told her. We are told in Romans chapter 12, do not return evil for evil. 
So we are not freed up to sin against someone because they have sinned against us. That means if someone sins against you, you have a, you have a responsibility. You, you have to respond to them rightly. But this is how we act in life. And the more we do it, the more it separates us from one another. What we need to do is we need to confess our sins to one another and be passionate about forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard. Ephesians 4 spells it out for us. Uh, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You want to know how to work out conflict? It's, it's right there. If you ever think you're naturally good at forgiving people, then you don't need to look any farther than this verse in Ephesians 4. Forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The way he has forgiven you is so much more complete and rich and full, and the way we have sinned against him is much more than any of us have ever sinned against each other. Charles Spurgeon, the, the great 19th century preacher, talked, talking about receiving and, and giving forgiveness, said it this way. It's appropriate with the snow falling out there. He says, My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. But the blessed gospel of the God of grace came to me, and with, and with it a sovereign word, deliver him. And as the snow fell on, on my road home, I thought, of, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the forgiveness that I had found. I, it, I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. But then ten years later, he added, added this. To be, to be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But yet there is one thing sweeter, and that is to forgive. As it is more blessed to give than to receive, so to forgive rises a stage higher in experience than to be forgiven. It is a beautiful and wonderful thing. It is what God does for us so that he forgives us so much. It is amazing freedom to receive forgiveness, and it is an amazing gracious act to be able to forgive others. Forgiveness is hard, so how is it possible? How is it even possible to agree in the Lord, to find peace in our relationships, to reconcile truly with our brothers and sisters so that we have peace, so that we have unity? God has built the church in a way that we are called to help each other. We need each other to help bring unity, to help bring forgiveness, to help bring reconciliation. Before he calls them out publicly, Paul gives us verse 1 to the entire church. But this would have included the two women at odds with each other. This is Philippians chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. He starts off with reminding them of his love and devotion he has for them. What he says in here is so beautiful. He calls them brothers and sisters. He says, I love you. He says, I long for you. He says, you are my joy. He says, you are my crown. And then he calls them beloved. This was also intended for Yodia and Syntyche. If you are going to bring peace, if you are going to be a peacemaker, then this is how you need to feel about the people that you are working with to bring about that, that, that resolution. This is how you should express yourself. Be willing to tell people that you love them, that they bring you joy. Tell them that they are your brother and sister. If you're going to point out what's wrong in their life, then you need, to be, you need to be willing to tell them how much you care about them. And you need to be willing to get involved. Get your hands dirty. Work with patience. We all need to be involved in, in, in this. Verse 3 says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have la labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. 
Our hearts are complicated, and so are our disagreements, our, our conflict. There's a lot of history, hurt, and sin wrapped up into our conflict. I've heard someone before describe our hearts as, as minefields. We have these places in our hearts that, that are so sensitive, that are so filled with hurt or self or sin, that when you hit that place, when you just do something that kind of nudges that place, when you step on it, suddenly the whole situation blows up, taking you and everyone around you with it. And nobody seems to know exactly what happened because that place was so sensitive. Hebrews 12, 15 describes it this way. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Like there's a root of bitterness that comes up in your heart, and it impacts a lot of people. So see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Galatians 5 says it this way. If you keep biting and devouring each other, you will be destroyed by each other. If you keep at it, if you keep doing this, you are going to destroy all, all these people around you. You're going to des destroy more than just you. Some part of your heart has become embittered, and then it springs up and it causes trouble. You take down all these people around you. If you're angry and talking bad about you other, each other, you will be destroyed by each other. There's different ways that you can deal with those landmines in our heart. Some of you just, just figure out what those landmines are and you just jump right on it and just set that off. Um, that's not the best way. We're going to rule that one out from the get-go. Um, oftentimes, we don't... Other people, we, we don't want to deal with it, we, we, so we figure out where those landmines are in another person's heart. We've been, we've been hurt by it before, so we, we figure out, you know, what, what that anger is, where, where it's sensitive. And so we just, we just weave our way through life, making sure that we never come close to those landmines. Um, it, it sounds like a good idea, uh, and there's some graciousness in it, um, but it's not really what you're, what you're hoping for as, as, as Christians. You learn what to say and, and what not to talk about, um, but it allows them to continue in their bitterness. It allows, you, allows them to continue in their anger, to continue in their belief that they're always right. What we as Christians are supposed to do is to help identify where those landmines are, how did they get there, why is this so important to you, why is this impacting you this way, and then carefully, patiently, and lovingly help dig up those minds and re remove them from your life. That is the work that Paul is calling the, the, the believers to be doing. Help them. We all need help sometimes. Right now, Yodia and Syntyche need help. So help them agree in the Lord. Figure out why this is happening and help them figure this out together. We need each other for this work and we need to remember the grace of God that has been extended to us. We need a grace-driven reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says this, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. How do you reconcile with one another? How do you come together and agree on these things when there's conflict between you? You always remind yourself that God has done the ultimate reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. He had done no wrong, and yet he came into this world and reconciled the world to himself. Jesus prays for the unity of his people in John 17. Ephesians 2 tells us that Christ gave his life to bring people who were strangers and enemies together. Remind yourself that Christ cares more about your, your peace that, that you have with others more than you do, and he has sacrificed much more than you ever could to bring that about. 
He has called us to sacrifice then our pride in order to model his message of reconciliation to others. He has called us to live peaceably with all men. When that fails, he calls us to love unselfishly from a heart that has been reconciled to God and finds confidence in that. He calls us to remember that we are new creations with new affections, new behavior, and that we were first loved when we were enemies. Agree in the Lord. Remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done. If you are in Christ, then you need to work out your differences, work out your situations. We are celebrating Advent and remembering all that it, it meant for God to send his son into the world for his, for his glory and for our rescue. After Jesus was born, there was, there was, there was a group of shepherds that God in his great wisdom chose to send an angel to make the greatest, grandest announcement in all of history that a Savior had been born. His name was Christ the Lord and you were going to find him in a barn manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. And as the angel made that announcement, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host. What that phrase means, multitude of the heavenly host, means an army of angels. A similar Hebrew word is, is translated in the book of Daniel, that the multitude is translated 10,000 times 10,000. These shepherds didn't look up and see 30 angels up in the sky. They were engulfed, surrounded by heavenly hosts on every side of them. And, and what they said in perfect unison was, was this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God loves peace. He loves bringing peace to his people. He wants his people to live in peace with one another. His angels sing out songs of praise to his peace. Christ came into the world and gave his life to bring peace to his people, to bring peace to their relationships. The beauty of redemption is that God will be known and praised for his glory by a peace-filled creation. That is where our hope lies today. That is where our hope for healthy relationship lies. That Christ came into this world to bring peace and went through the agony and brutality of the cross to conquer the power of sin and death so that we could have peace. And, and yet, we so easily hang on to our opinions, our desire to be right, our pride, our sense of entitlement in the face of 10,000 upon 10,000 angels singing out the peace of God in the face of a crucified Savior who said, I've come to bring peace. Let go of all of that. Turn to Christ and seek reconciliation with your brothers and sisters. Live in unity. Live in peace because of who he is and what he has done. He has done all of it, and now we get to respond to it. One of the marks of being reconciled to the Father is a willingness to be reconciled to others, to forgive. We're told if you do not forgive, you are not forgiven. If we believe in the forgiveness of sins, then we cannot refuse to forgive the sins of others. When conflicts arise, we cannot refuse to reconcile. We can't refuse to seek peace. We must pursue forgiveness. We must be passionate about forgiving people. We should rejoice in reconciliation and not simply agree to it begrudgingly. We should at all times be pursuing the mind of Christ and to have the same mind with one another. It will transform the way we talk to each other. It will transform the way we talk about each other. It will give us the ability to truly begin to think of others as better than ourselves, because Christ so humbly gave himself for us. How did, how did God reconcile, him to, reconcile us to himself? By giving his son so that relationships could be prepared by showing love to sinful people, by forgiving people even when they continue to sin against him. How do we forgive each other? 
We remember how much we've been forgiven. How do we admit we're wrong and seek true forgiveness? We, we remember that even when we were sinners, Christ loved us and, and we find our confidence and security in him. So then we can confess our sins, we can seek true reconciliation even though we, we think it might cost us. If you are here today and you say, I've never experienced that kind of forgiveness, I know of sin, then the call to you today is to enter into the forgiveness of God made possible in Christ. The call to you today is to turn to Christ, look to Christ, seek Christ, find that forgiveness and, and, and trust that it can transform your life and transform your relationships. One of the ways for all of us that we are reminded of the peace of God that, that, that has been brought to us through Christ is by taking communion each week. As a church, we gather together and we, we, we get reminded of those beautiful words that, that God has, has, has extended to us, that Christ has extended to us, um, that, that the body of Christ was given for us, that the blood of Christ was shed for us. So even now, as we prepare to take communion, we get to remember all of these things. We get to remember that God cares much more about your peace than any of us ever could, that that. Christ has given much more than any of us ever would but by letting down, humbling ourselves, letting go of, of, of our rights and, and for the sake of peace and unity. And so for those that have trusted and believed in Christ, we encourage you today to come, take the bread and dip that into the juice and hear those wonderful words. The body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And know that because of that, you have been brought peace. You have been given peace. Rejoice in that and allow that to shape your relationship with others. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, so much for what you have done. We thank you for the peace uh, that, that those angels sang out about. We thank you for the peace that you have brought in sending your son into this world in the midst of, of so much conflict, so much anger, and so much bitterness, so much war, so, so many things that would divide us, you came and you loved us. In the midst of us doing all of those things against you, you came into this world and you loved us. Um, you brought peace to us. You made peace with your people. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that. I pray that this week we would be reminded of that, that we would go out, that we would seek reconciliation where we need to, that we would love forgiveness, we would we rejoice in, in unity, uh, and, and that that would transform the way we are with one another. Father, thank you for this, this wonderful example. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Tim Abbott given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.